0: All right, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is you your secretly a fairy the whole time speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The War of the Flowers by Tad Williams, which was originally published in 2003. All the way back in my first review of The Memory of Whiteness, I told the story of how I encountered Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy as mass market paperbacks in a spinner rack at a post exchange or the army base bookstore. But those were the only great books that I discovered on that spinner rack decades ago, really feels like a whole lifetime ago. I also found there The City of Golden Shadow. That was the only book in the series that was out in mass market at that point. But I devoured this book in the span of about a day and a half. I absolutely loved it. And when I got finally to a a, a permanent duty station in the United States and had access to a regular bookstore, I was able to keep up with the series as it came out, and I absolutely loved it. And during that time, I also read his epic fantasy series, and I read his standalone novel about a cat, which I really remember loving. And so I was very excited to read this book, to read The War of the Flowers, Unfortunately, it's a bit of a clunker, the first one that I've done on this show. But even though I don't think this novel succeeds, it has some strengths. And I think we can learn a lot about writing craft by talking about this book's weaknesses. So let's take a deep breath and get into The War of the Flowers by Tad Williams. The War of the Flowers is a crossover fairy story. So part of the story takes place in our world. It's in San Francisco around the year 2000. But we are going to follow our protagonist as he journeys into the land of fairy. Before we meet that protagonist, though, we get a a prologue in fairy. And this, this really establishes the book's fantasy bona fides, even though much of the early part of the book, I mean, really 150 pages or so, is going to take place in San Francisco. And really for about two thirds of the book, Williams alternates between long chapters about our protagonist and then short chapters from another point of view. It's a different point of view each time. But those points of view and these short vignettes are really meant to build the fantasy world for us and also let us see some of the the machinations of the plot that is building around the protagonist, who's not really going to be much of an agent in this story. Now, this prologue is a thickly described conversation between a powerful fairy and the magical assassin he wants to hire to kill a child in the mortal world, that's to say our world. And of course, this is an ominous beginning that lets us know that big things are afoot. All right, let's meet our protagonist. Theo Vilmos is a 30-ish man with a Peter Pan complex. He's a musician, a singer to be precise, who almost made it in the booming alternative rock scene in the 1990s. But only almost. Now, just after 2000, he still holds on to that dream, not quite making a living delivering flowers to downtown offices by day and by night, singing in a band with people 10 years his junior. Kids, he thinks of them. But there is more to his life than this. Theo also lives with his girlfriend, Kat, who is several months pregnant with their first child. Theo is not really ready for this, not ready for fatherhood, and he's maybe feeling a little bit trapped here, but he also doesn't harbor any hate or any resentment about this situation. And Theo's story opens with a band practice coming to a close, and Theo returning home late at night to find blood everywhere, and cat in the bathroom, just barely able to whisper, I lost it. This is a graphic start to this story, and Shocking, too, and really heartbreaking, right? This is a story that begins with a miscarriage. It begins with the death of a a child. And we've been primed by the prologue to expect the murder of a child, but I certainly didn't expect it to happen just a few pages later. But it also turns out that while horrible, this was a perfectly mundane miscarriage, meaning there was nothing magical or supernatural at work here. And I can't imagine going through this. and, And we'll talk more about Theo's response to this in a later segment. And She leaves Theo and then Theo has to go find a new place to live. And so he moves in with his mother and it turns out that his mother is dying from cancer. And we also learn here that Theo's father had died a few years previously. And all of this adds up to just a tremendous amount of of loss for Theo in just a, a short amount of time. And before his mother dies, she says something cryptic about the night they took the baby. And she also apologizes for never really loving Theo. She says that somehow she just never felt bonded to him, though she wishes that she had. And since we already know that we're reading a fairy story, we recognize here with just these few tidbits of information that Theo is a changeling, right? He's a fairy who was swapped with a human when they were babies. And this explains why he's such an awesome singer and so attractive, and maybe also why he's so immature. We're drawing to a close on the first part of the book here, but there are just a few more things that have to happen before Theo winds up in Fairy and gets embroiled in the titular War of the Flowers. First, we know from some of our cutscenes in Fairy that the magical assassin is now sending some kind of Lovecraftian monster after Theo. And second, as Theo is going through his mother's papers, he discovers a book written by a great uncle who was a a world traveler, really straight out of a Jack London story. And this book is a a first-person travelogue about a human spending some time in the land of fairy. Theo thinks it's just a draft of a fantasy novel, but of course, we know that it is all going to turn out to be true. And I'll say right here that the few pages we get of this book within the book are really the best parts of this novel. And frankly, I'm not sure why Williams just didn't write that book. More on that later. Okay, let's get to fairy. The monster shows up and almost gets Theo, but just in time, he's rescued by a good guy. And this introduces us to our second hero of the book. This is the fairy, Applecore. And she's a Tinkerbell-style fairy, right? She's tiny with wings, but she's foul-mouthed and no-nonsense and can't stop ridiculing Theo for being a moron. It's all meant to be funny. It's meant to be a hilarious juxtaposition. And Applecore works for people on the other side of a political dispute from the fairy lord who has sent this monster after Theo. And she's here to rescue him by bringing him to fairy and under the protection of these other powerful fairies. And this dramatic and daring rescue brings the first part of the book to a close. And the second part introduces us to the land of fairy and to the city. Of New Erewhon. Now, this name of the only city in fairy is an homage to Samuel Butler's novel Erewhon, which was published in 1872 and has much the same premise: a person travels to a strange land, and in exploring that land, is able to offer a critique of his own society, right? To hold that land up as a sort of dark mirror. And indeed, this land of fairy is not the place we meet in medieval fairy stories, or even in Shakespeare or Spencer it is really a dark mirror of our own society. There are skyscrapers and cars and trains and heavy industry and pollution. There's also much in the way of social and racial injustice. Uh, A wealthy elite, the flower lords, control everything. And these fairies are physically, physiologically the closest to humans. They look like us and don't have wings and so on. And these flower lords oppress other types of fairies, including the Tinkerbell types like applecore and also goblins and ogres and so on. And most of the people of fairy are connected to a specific aristocratic family whose names all derive from flowers such as primrose and foxglove. And these families live in fortified skyscrapers. And don't seem to trust each other not to do violence to them and it all feels like a like a, a renaissance city state with some robber baron style industrial capitalism thrown into the mix okay that's the setting in in a nutshell anyway but what's the plot what's this story about where is this war of the flowers we were promised it turns out that this level of industry and in fairy is unsustainable and part of what makes it unsustainable is that Fairy and our own world share a common source of mystical energy. And as our own hyper-industrial society has expanded and expanded, we've taken a disproportionate share of the supply. And this has sparked a political controversy within the six aristocratic houses who rule Fairy as a type of plutocracy or type of oligarchy. Some of them want to destroy the motor world to free up that energy supply for Fairy, and some of them don't want to do that. And of course, we learn fairly quickly that it is the leader of this anti-mortal faction who has hired the magical assassin to get Theo for reasons that aren't at all clear, but certainly must have something to do with the fact that he is secretly actually a fairy, even though he's been raised as a mortal. Now at this point of the story, Theo is under the care of one of these not anti mortal houses, and the family decides to host the Council of Elrond while Theo watches, but the bad guy families just decide not to come to this council at the last minute, and instead they send some dragons to destroy the skyscraper while all the good guys are inside. And this is an act not just of political violence, but an act of terrorism, and Williams intentionally describes it in a way that would make us think of nine eleven. Now, during all of this, Theo is in the basement watching the Council of Elrond on TV, so he survives this attack, but he's on the run now, and he ends up in a camp in a big park on the outskirts of the city, and this vagabond community is run by a goblin named Button. Theo met him previously, so that's convenient for him, and we the readers have gotten actually a few cut scenes with Button in which we have seen him maltreated by flower lords. In the aftermath of this terrorist attack, and this was an attack carried out by one part of the government against another as a, a type of coup, in the aftermath of this attack, loads of new people have come to Button's camp, including some members of the Flower families who had been attacked, though we are assured that despite being rich and powerful, they aren't really like the bad guys. Theo is kind of stupid throughout this book, more on that in a bit, so he doesn't quite realize what is obvious to us, which is that Button is about to lead a revolution against the Flower Lords and overthrow industrial capitalism in Fairy. Theo does some espionage work for him without really understanding it and really knowing what he's up to, but his story is still mainly concerned with the fact that the the magical assassin is trying to kill him. And the solution that he and Button settle on is that Theo should just go talk to the assassin and get him to stop. And it turns out that the assassin is actually Theo's great-uncle, the one who wrote that travel book about visiting fairy. And this is where we get all the backstory we could ever want. When he was younger, Theo's great-uncle came here and fell in love with a young woman, one of the the flower lords, a Primrose. And this wasn't tolerated by the racist aristocratic society, and so he was banished back to the mortal world. But he loved this Primrose woman so much that he would do anything to stay with her. And so he devised a way to come back after returning briefly to the mortal world, and that plan involved swapping out his niece's new baby with a new fairy baby, Theo. Theo Vilmos, it turns out, is really Septimus Violet. He's a flower lord by birth. The the Violet house doesn't exist anymore. It was destroyed during the previous flower war just uh, 30 years ago or so. But this makes Theo the last heir to one of the ruling families, and therefore something of a threat to the bad guys who want to blow up the mortal world. And that's going to come back in a minute, but I want to elaborate just a bit more on Theo's great uncle. He, he became this magical assassin because things went wrong with his plan, and so now he's trapped in a body so hideous that anyone who sees it will go mad. And in fact, that's what happened to the woman he loved. And it's a tragic story, and one that is, frankly, it's more interesting than Theo's. And again, I have to wonder why Williams didn't just write that book. But what matters here is that the assassin, Theo's great uncle, did indeed use magic to cause Kat's miscarriage at the beginning of the book. And I'll be talking about this in a later segment. So while we're getting all of this backstory, the bad guys arrive and they take Theo away. And it turns out that because he is the last living member of House Violet, he has some special powers that the bad guys need in order to destroy the mortal world. They take Theo to the magical place where they have to do this, but in the meantime, the goblin Button has begun his revolution, and he's winning. So the bad guys really have to hurry here. And of course, they don't win. In the end, Theo uses two tricks to destroy the other magic MacGuffin the bad guys need, and then Button's forces arrive and take care of the mundane part of rescuing Theo. And that brings the book to an end. Let's move into talking about the, the themes and the, the motifs in The War of the Flowers. And, and, and really, this book has two main themes, social justice and literary history. The injustice of fairy society is really the much larger of these two. So I'll talk about that one first. And on the face of it, this is a book about an uprising against oppressive plutocrats. It's about a revolution against industrial capitalism and the economic hierarchies it creates. The heroes of the story are a goblin, a member of a race of slaves, essentially, and some of the lower class fairies who Theo meets along the way. And Williams means for this to get readers to think about our own system of global capitalism and wonder if we might be better off without it. And that's a great theme for a book. This is something that speculative fiction is for. This is what Samuel Butler's Erewhon is about. It's what Star Trek does and so on. And we'll be talking about this theme again on ATOS. In fact, again and again, because speculative fiction always is dealing with this. But Williams really botches it. He approaches these themes like a teenager would. The, the core of the problem isn't that this system of industrial capitalism and fairy has created social and economic inequalities, uh, in fact, can only exist because of them. Rather, Williams's approach to this theme is that mean people suck, The problem isn't that rich people have acquired their wealth through a complex system of exploitation. The problem is that they are mean to their servants, and all it takes for a flower lord to be a good guy in this story is to be nice to the servants. Not to pay them any better or allow them to be politically enfranchised, but just to say, thanks for making me this tea, sometimes. There's no exploration of the idea that a person can be perfectly nice and polite, but still be an economic oppressor simply by living atop a hierarchy of exploitation, an unexamined hierarchy of exploitation at that. And of course, the whole political dispute among the flower lords that drives the plot of this book, that drives the War of the Flowers in the first place, this arises from resource scarcity due to poor environmental stewardship. That's also a really great theme that science fiction is meant to take up. And Williams wants us to get that pollution is bad. But this part of the plot never goes anywhere. It's never resolved in any way other than through the quiet suggestion that now that the Flower Lords have been defeated, everything's going to be great. And in the end, it's all pretty juvenile in a book that's written for adults. And by the conclusion of the book, this all feels tired and just had me wanting to put the book down and go read any of the hundreds of other speculative fiction books that deal with these themes in a much more sophisticated way. Now, the other theme is perhaps more interesting here, if also rather confusing, and that is Williams's place in the history of literature. Williams is quite conscious of writing a fairy story, and this is a tradition that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages and Williams does a nice job of including bits of Shakespeare's A uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and Spencer's The Fairy Queen, you know, sprinkled throughout this story. And we even see Oberon and Titania at the end of the book. They're they're dead in something very much like Tolkien's Dead Marshes, and that is a lot of fun. I really liked that element of the book here. And of course, there's the other fairy tradition in our culture, the the Disney side that comes from Tinkerbell, really, I guess. And although I didn't really care for Applecore as a type of manic pixie dream girl, I did like that Williams uses her to play with that Tinkerbell tradition. All of that is really great. But we have to turn now to the bizarre part of what Williams does with literary history. In, In the first part of the book, we get some excerpts of his great uncle's account of fairy, and it's written like an Edwardian travelogue, and I think these excerpts are great. I, I think they're better than the novel. But Williams has Theo complain about them. And, and let me just read you a passage of Theo thinking about this book. It would never be classed as a great work of fiction, or even a particularly good one. The rhetoric tended toward the floret, for one thing, heavily influenced by the pulps the author had read in his youth. And it also seemed far more like a travelogue than a novel unimportant incidents often given the same weight and detail as far more meaningful events. And then Theo goes on to think that it is full of purposeful obfuscations picked up from too much Lovecraft. And then Theo wonders if his great uncle will turn out to be a real writer or just an amateur trying to spice up his story with things stolen from the pulp magazine Weird Tales. And I'm not done with excerpts, but I want to pause here to explicate what I just read. Williams is knocking the early origins of his own genre. He's, he's calling the pulp writers overly florid, and he's criticizing Lovecraft for not writing his books with the D&D Monster Manual in mind. And this is something he almost actually says in the next passage I want to read. Here's what Williams writes. He was losing patience with the book. The descriptions were interesting, even fascinating. But the tales of his life in the fairy city were just anecdotal and ultimately pointless. The book was probably a a hopelessly uncommercial mixture of fantasy without adventure. Not real adventure anyway, the, the kind the Dungeons and Dragons kids wanted. An authoritative traveler's guide to a place no one could ever actually visit. So here's the deal with this. I would much rather have read this fantasy without adventure travelogue than the unsophisticated fantasy political thriller that Williams actually wrote. The passages of this book that Williams does include here are far more interesting than this novel. And more importantly, they are way better written. But then Williams turns around and insults it. And I'm boggled by this, right? He makes fun of his own best writing. Does he think that the excerpts he gives from this fictional book are actually bad and is really making fun of them? Am I a weirdo for liking them? And maybe I am, but I have to think that something else is going on here. And I think we can point to the phrases hopelessly commercial and Dungeons and Dragons kids as perhaps a commentary not on this type of writing, but on the publishing industry. I I have the sense that Williams also wanted to write this travelogue to New Erewhon, but this publisher told him that it would be hopelessly uncommercial. And that's a shame. Well let's move into talking about this book's strengths and weaknesses. I didn't like this book very much, but still, the novel has some strengths that I want to emphasize. First, I want to stick with Williams's theme of literary history, and and really, we might call this storytelling as a theme here. I think the most interesting character in this book is the goblin revolutionary Button. He gives up his life so that his people can be free, and, and not just his people, but all people. As much as this book is about Theo Vilmos, Button is the real hero as far as I'm concerned. But Button matters here really because Williams characterizes goblin culture through its music and especially through its stories. Goblin stories, you see, have a hole in the middle. They they never tell the full story. Something is always missing. And of course, what's missing is always the most important part. And we really only get two examples of this, but in each case, the whole is there. But if a listener were to stop and consider the story, the whole and also its significance would become apparent. And this also seems to be something of a commentary on stories in general, but perhaps also on the state of publishing or what types of stories can make it to publication. Because Williams has the audiences of these goblin stories get so mad that the whole is there. They get really upset that the storyteller just isn't spelling it out for them, that the storyteller is making them actively engage with the story rather than merely be amused by it. And all of this really feels like Tad Williams is actively mocking people who write one-star reviews of Gene Wolfe books on Amazon or Goodreads. The second strength I want to emphasize is the world that Williams imagines. It's it's not developed very fully, but what he gives us is really quite imaginative. For one, the the idea that fairy and Earth are mystically connected and that fairy is always a kind of empty imitation of humanity is really interesting. And toward the end of the book, there's even a, a short conversation in which we learn that Although fairies are people, they don't have souls, and and that's something I really wish that Williams had explored more. But even more than this detail, the fairy city is awesome. It's a walled city, or at least it it used to be a walled city, and it is circular. The districts of the city are, are like pie wedges, originating in the center and stretching out to the periphery, and they're named after times of day, such as gloaming and midnight, and essentially the city is a clock. And these areas even have some of the properties of the time of day or their, their position on this clock, including the, the thickness of the magical power, uh, which is really at its most thick at midnight. And this is an element of the world that really fascinated me. But unfortunately, we barely get any of it. And, and this is because the story is told almost entirely from the point of view of Theo Vilmos, who is a stranger here. And I think this can transition us to talking about weaknesses because As much as I find the world itself to be the biggest strength of this novel, the world-building is in fact one of its weaknesses. Williams builds his speculative world almost entirely through dialogue. There are some exceptions, and these are all in the short cutscenes early in the book, but what we learn about the world in those scenes is almost entirely inconsequential, and Williams overwhelmingly relies on the fact that Theo Vilmos is a stranger here, and he just lets him ask questions and listen to the answers— and this is a frustratingly uncompelling way to build a world. It means that there isn't anything at stake in most of the scenes in this book, so we don't care what's happening. But it's at its worst late in the story when we as readers need information about the world in order to understand the plot devices, the, the magic stuff that's going to resolve the plot. And, and here Williams just has Theo go to characters and ask them to explain their backstory. And it really just feels like a video game in these moments. And this type of world building is like nails on a blackboard to me. And as I say all the time, the world and the world building are among my primary values. They're they're what I go to speculative fiction for. But even though Williams commits some grave sins here, at least in my book, the the real problem with this novel, the real reason it just fails, is that the protagonist is awful. Theo Vilmos is a despicable and unsympathetic character, but he's also just willfully stupid throughout the book. Let's address the despicable part first. The novel opens with Theo's girlfriend losing their child through a miscarriage and then breaking up with him. He then loses his mother to cancer, and and these things are genuinely awful. But Theo's reactions to all of this are whiny and selfish. Now, this could be interesting if the book were about those responses, right? If the book were exploring why a person might have selfish feelings while his mother is dying of cancer, and explore how that person feels about those feelings. But that's not what Williams does. And indeed, it's, it's pretty clear that we're supposed to sympathize with his character, even as he himself has no sympathy and no empathy for anyone else. He's also got real unsettling attitudes about women. He, he thinks about sex in highly objectifying terms. And there's one particular line that I want to share here. Williams writes, Theo hesitated in front of a magazine rack, staring at something called Eoth's Harp. He figured that of the two kinds of periodicals he generally liked, in a land of women who always wore head-to-toe clothing, he was probably going to have better luck with music magazines. So it's 2003, and Theo's a guy who laments that the magical land of fairy doesn't have porn magazines. And we're supposed to like this guy? On top of that, Theo is a kind of Mary Sue character, and not in the sense that he never fails and easily overcomes every obstacle— but in the sense that he is a clear stand-in for the author. I mean, literally, the character's name is Tad Williams, right? Tad is short for Theodore, and Vilmos is the Hungarian equivalent of William. And Theo reads very much like a sort of adolescent wish fulfillment, right? He's the person that 13-year-old Tad Williams wanted to be when he grows up. Lead singer in a band, spectacularly attractive, untethered, cool leather jacket, great hair, and with a financial inheritance that lets him sit around and read books for a little while. And This all takes place in the Bay Area, where Williams grew up. Now, none of this is good, but it could all be overlooked if Theo worked as a point-of-view character. But he doesn't. Now, look, Williams didn't invent the fantasy trope of writing the speculative world from the vantage of a stranger, and it's also not a bad trope, and he takes advantage of it, right? This is classic, and it can work really well, but in order to get some of the world building accomplished, Williams has to have Theo ask some really, really stupid questions, And even worse, Theo has to refuse to believe anything that he's observing, and and no human would actually behave this way, right? We're very smart monkeys. We're fully capable of accepting that just because we've never seen anything like this before doesn't mean it isn't real or that we can't figure out how it works. right? My cats do this better than Theo Vilmos does. And in the end, disliking this character on moral and ethical grounds and also just wanting to give him an F in critical thinking means that it is hard to get into this book, right? If I can't sympathize or empathize with the protagonist here, it's difficult to buy in. It's difficult to care about any of the things that are at stake. And then given that all of the world building is done in this totally uncompelling, this frustratingly uncompelling manner, and that the central theme is dealt with in an entirely adolescent, really an entirely juvenile way all of this ends up to a dismal failure a real disappointment of a book well that brings my review to a close my my first truly negative review something that i hope will be a complete rarity around here and I still hope that I'll have the chance to go back and revisit Tad Williams's Otherland series, something that I recall with real fondness, and, and something I expect will live up to that fondness. I, I think this book was an aberration. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs, also about the strengths and the weaknesses I focused on, but especially on the things I didn't get to talk about. There's an unresolved puzzle in this novel, and I would love to know what you think the answer is we encounter Oberon and Titania, the the former king and queen of fairy, who are straight out of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And they're imprisoned in a kind of suspended animation at the end of this book. But when the climax resolves, their bodies are just gone. Where did they go? What happened to them? I would love to know what you think. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. All right, well, next time we're going to be reading Eye in the Sky by Philip K. Dick. I, I can't believe that we've made it more than a dozen episodes <laughs> into this show uh, before finally getting to Philip K. Dick, who is a massive part of my adolescence. But I'm very excited about this. So until then... I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.